Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. America has the largest incarcerated population in the world. This staggering and troubling fact has driven a great deal of scholarship. Much of this research has shown that mass incarceration in America is facilitated by systematic racial discrimination, which disproportionately affects African American and Latinx communities. Only recently have scholars focused on the role of religion in American prisons. In American prisons, a critical primer on culture and conversion to Islam, Spirit Professor of Law at Texas Southern University, brings the subject of incarcerated Muslims into focus. The collection of essays synthesizes Spirit's legal and academic work on issues of conversion, radicalization, and Muslim prisoner rights. Overall, the collection demonstrates that prisons are a crucial space for understanding the history of Muslims in America. In our conversation, we discuss how Muslims have shaped religious life in prisons, the everyday challenges of incarceration, prison as a center for religious conversion, reasons prisoners choose Islam while incarcerated, prison administrators and policymakers' definition of radicalization, Muslim hip-hop in the age of mass incarceration, incarcerated Latinx communities, and strategies to improve the criminal justice system. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Without any further delay, here's my conversation with Spirit about his great new book, American Prisons, A Critical Primer on Culture and Conversion to Islam. Welcome, Spirit. Thanks for joining me on New Books in Islamic Studies. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me. It's really a pleasure and honor to be here with you. Yeah, well, I was excited to uh, track down your book, American Prisons, A Critical Primer on Culture and Conversion to Islam. Um, and I'm familiar with your work from uh, from others working on uh, Muslims in America. So I was excited to to uh, get to speak to you. Um, before we get into the book and some of your work, um, we usually be- uh, begin with a little bit about the author. So could you tell us a little bit about your, your background and training and how you got interested in this intersection between uh, prisons and uh, Muslims? Well, yes, thanks. This um, really got its start, um, you know, a little over 10 years ago as a grad student. Um, so when I was a grad student, I was focused on South Asian studies, really looking at Indian philosophy and Hinduism. And as a teaching assistant, we read a, um, an article called Jihadis in the Hood. And it was just a small article in the Middle East Report. And I read that and something hit. <laughs> it sort of set off all sorts of bells and whistles in my head. And um, I immediately started looking for books at the intersection of Islam and prison. Uh, I was very interested at that point. Uh, and I was shocked. I couldn't find any mon- I couldn't find any books on this topic. 
And that to me was a signal. And from that point, I started um, looking into it and I ended up making it the subject of my PhD dissertation. I was doing a, um, a PhD in religious studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And, you know, I took that, <laughs> that left turn at Albuquerque, so to speak. And I started um, looking and I, you know, I never, I never took another Hindu type class after that. And I didn't study any more languages. I just immersed myself in studying um, about, you know, the American prison system and trying to figure out why there was nothing really available. There wasn't very much research at all on um, Muslim converts or, um, you know, Muslim culture in prison. And so I just saw a huge vacuum, and I myself was very interested um, in, in a number of the elements that that article talked about, including, you know, Latino conversion and hip-hop music and all the interconnections. And from there, I just, I, I went, dove in head first, and at somewhere in the, somewhere in the process of researching and, and working on the dissertation, I realized that I had to go to law school <laughs> during during all of this. I just realized that in order to really do the work that I want to do and to have it authoritative, at least, you know, in the legal arena, I would have to go to the, you know, go to law school and go through that ritual and get legal training as well, especially since I was getting more immersed in, in the area of prisoners' rights. And so learning the law in this area became very important. So this this thing turned into a much bigger project that entailed me going to school and spending a lot of money and getting extra training. And so that's really how um, the project came about is that, you know, I wrote a dissertation, then I got legal training. And then what I did was to break up parts of the dissertation. I felt like the dissertation was really robust, had a lot of um, things going on. And so I kind of took some of the individual parts and made chapters out of them. I would write law review articles or book chapters. Um, I wrote a report. And so I did all this other kind of spin-off work, if you will, from the dissertation. And so after 10 years of writing and researching, I felt like I had to um, put something together with all of this work. You know, I have, I'm, I'm part of my training is I'm a DJ from way back in the day. So sort of mixing records and doing all that stuff. And so that's kind of what I felt I was doing is that I had all these works that I had written over, you know, a decade worth of, of time. And now I just wanted to do a mix. And so that's how this anthology came about is that I took all the different writings and I, you know, edited them, chopped them up and re reduced them to, you know, sort of the essential elements and then mixed it together in this anthology. And that's really how this um, thing came about. I felt like I had to catalog this body of work so that I could go on sort of to my second strike, you know, to, uh, you know, I, I'm interested in, in criminal procedure and I'm interested in some other areas. And when it came to this prison culture project, I felt like I had to catalog this and drop it so that I could move on, you know, intellectually, academically. So this represents, you know, like a mix that I had to um, leave behind so that I could sort of free my mind from it and start moving on to other projects that I had. So that's that's kind of how this came about. 
Yeah, you do a really good job synthesizing things. And I think it also goes along with um, you talk a little bit about um, kind of addressing different audiences, which uh, it's already becoming apparent from uh, kind of how you described your your trajectory that um, you're you're interested in engaging different audiences. So um, could you talk about uh, both this idea of like how you put and what we might think of academic work, um, along with maybe more practical work. You talk about doing interviews and correspondence with prisoners. You talk about various educational initiatives you've done in prisons um, and then legal work. Can you talk about kind of these flip sides, these multiple ways of engaging this topic that you've, uh, you've done over the years and then how you've kind of synthesized this uh, to, to what audiences are you trying to speak to uh, with this book? What are you trying to accomplish with this book? Yeah, so that's great. I, you know, the academic side of my training, you know, the, the religious studies and the theological training, I guess that's the sort of mode of inquiry. The dissertation kind of started um, by looking at conversion in prison through the lens of sacred space. So I was very much grounded in my academic tradition and was. Um, starting the inquiry from from that perspective, what happened is that over time, you know, when I was in law school, um, legal academics are a little different from, you know, a, a classical academic department in the sense that, you know, the, the academics in legal studies are very concerned about, um, you know, solutions, you know, um, how to reform or how to fix what our scholarship is showing is problematic, right? How do we develop policy from this? What kind of normative takeaways or prescriptions can we um, derive from the work? And so that's the the two things that I'm working with. It's just my academic inclinations, my interests, my training. But then, you know, with the legal training, you always have an eye to the normative. And so that's kind of what um, is driving my work is that um, I want to, you know, investigate and inquire, but I also want to resolve and help fix. And that's the key component that the uh, legal training has given to me. And so when I'm working on, you know, these different projects, I feel like it's my academic background as a religious studies scholar that really gives me the ideas and um, the lens through which to engage some of these subjects. But it's my legal training that always makes me want to have some sort of normative conclusion, something to say, hey, now that we see the problem, what can we do about it? And that's, you know, again, when I was writing papers in law school, you know, you kind of learned this the hard way. It's like the, the professors would be something like, okay, well, you've made an argument, so what? <laughs> so what? What you know? And so, what, how can you actually implement that in the real world? How can this be of practical value? And so, that has always been what I do. And even if in this work you can see the end part is something of that sort. I'm looking to figure out how we can improve academics, how we can improve policy. So that is really at least one of the major audiences that I'm always writing for is that I'm hoping some legislators, some judges, policymakers, people in the area 
of decision making, right? The stakeholders in corrections, you know, in the administration of justice. I'm really hoping that they'll look at my work and say, well, and, and so far, listen, it's been pretty successful. I'm, I'm very pleased with the outcomes that have occurred based on my work in the sense that federal judges have used my research to lower sentences for Muslim prisoners um, charged with terrorist crimes, for example. Um, I've had my work cited in, uh, you know, Amici briefs to the Supreme Court or like the Holt v. Hobbs case and another Muslim prisoner case. So it's happening. You know, it's very exciting to see my work being used by, you know, these different stakeholders and actually seeing your impact on the law, right? So that's kind of the, the, the twofold nature of what I'm doing is that, you know, I come from this, you know, this academic background. But then the legal aspects make me want the work to count in other areas, right, so that it can be useful. So that's kind of what I'm trying to weave together in this work. But pretty much all of my all of my work is to try to have some sort of outcome that can change things, that can reform and improve um, the systems that we have in place. Now, uh, one one of the things that came through really uh, strongly for me, and probably because uh, you know, coming from an Islamic studies perspective is um, really, I think you make the case for um, centering uh, American prisons as a, a place, uh, an essential place to understand the history of Muslims in America. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, why thinking about Islam in prisons is important to this history. Yes. So that is a, it's a good question. And you're right. That's one of the things that I try to draw out um, in this work, um, particularly in the work that I'm that I'm working, you know, the project that I have going on right now is really trying to make this case. And it's because, you know, it's a it's a very um, critical space um, for not just the history of Islam, but for African-American history in the United States, you know, just as a, you know, as a story or a um, narrative in African-American history, the black you know, man who goes to prison and converts to Islam, it's a, um, you know, it's a trite <laughs> story. It's something that, you know, you have skits making fun of it. You have, you know, all kinds of books about it. And you just have this thing that, you know, it's, it's, it's not an apostasy, apostasy for, um, you know, a black male to go to prison and convert to Islam. And so not only is it a place where um, allegedly there are many conversions taking place, uh, but it's also a, a piece of what I call African Americana. And so just the sheer number of, you know, there we have only estimates as far as how many Muslims are currently in prison and how many convert when you take into account all the jails, prisons, um, and federal prisons across the country. We only have estimates, but the estimates that we have suggest that there are um, more, con you know, that Islam is the religion of choice for converts. Right? Per capita, that if you're going to convert to a religion, then Islam is likely that religion, uh, as well as, you know, having large numbers in different prison systems. And so, 
the prisons are this very important place where um, people convert to Islam. And I, I feel that that's an important, you know, I've actually done some, just played around with some of these statistics. And it can be a little overwhelming when you think about some of the estimates. I've taken some of the estimates that were given at a congressional hearing, um, you know, this was, you know, about a decade ago, um, and took that against some of the current measures of of the number of Muslims in in the United States altogether, and sort of taking the high number of prison estimates, you know, of prison Muslims versus the number out in the out in the free world. And, you know, you can get an estimate anywhere from 12 to 15 percent of the American Muslim population is imprisoned. I, I mean, that's that that can that's a shocking idea to think that over 10 percent of all Muslims in the United States are in prison. So when I say that it's a, an important place and it needs to, you know, needs more attention, further research. It's because it, it is a very important place, not just for the Mike Tysons and the Malcolm X's of the world that have really made this idea famous, uh, but just for the raw number of people who encounter Islam in prison. Um, it is worthy of, of, of study, but really of occupying a central place in Muslim American history and African American history and the history of American prisons. Now, um, for, for folks that uh, perhaps haven't uh, looked into uh, the intersection of religion and prison, um, do you think you could tell us a little bit about the role of religion in, in contemporary uh, American prisons? And then uh, more specifically, uh, how have uh, imprisoned Muslims shaped some of the, the rights or privileges uh, related to religious life in prison. Right. Um, great. So the one thing that is kind of you know, important to recognize is that prior to the United States and this country putting together this thing called the penitentiary, you know, prior to the evolution of this thing called the prison, there was never really... Um, you know, a, a, an institution like this, you know, n nowhere really in the history of the world do you find something quite like what happens in the United States, where your time in prison, that actual time is your sentence. Prior to that, you know, at least in this country, in England, where have you, um, there were jails and holding cell cells, but those were sort of stops along the way to your actual punishment. Right. That's where they would hold you and then they would put you, you know, either beat you or whatever the punishment would be or the stocks, the bonds, whatever, whatever that was going to be. Holding you in a, you know, in, in, a, in a room was just sort of a pit stop along the way to your real punishment. So it was never really the punishment like time itself as the punishment is a very uniquely American project. And so. That is something that we have branded in this country. And of course, just to give a sense, we are now the world leader in incarceration, both in rates, you know, at how quickly or how, how much we incarcerate, and just in the size itself, the population. So we're a world leader in incarceration. 
and the way we kind of got here has a lot to do with religion itself. Religion in the sense that at the at the early part of this country, there was a lot of rever- uh, um, aversion to the death penalty. And so prisons, you know, and again, abolition efforts were largely guided by religionists. This was people who had strong feelings about killing and they came from a religious background. Uh, and so the abolition movement has always had this Christ- Christian tinge to it. And the substitute that they offered was the prison, right? So it was abolitionists in some degree that helped popularize uh, the prison as a form of punishment over instead of uh, the death penalty. But more religious in the sense that um, it was the Quakers who adopted uh, this form of, of punishment called, you know, they called it the penitentiary. And when the prison system sort of developed, you had two models. You had a work-based model, and then you had this religion-based model, which was the penitentiary, which itself derives from Catholic practices of punishment, right? So to punish clergy, they would, you know, um, have clergy do, do penitent. And so the, the, the penitent would be put in a room, given a Bible, you know, whatever study materials and you know, would spend time alone trying to reconcile the wayward ways with God. And so that was viewed as, as attractive for, you know, among uh, Quakers in this country who really advocated for penitentiary houses. And so I know in this country, we like to think that there's been, you know, very strict separation between uh, state and religion. Um, but here you have an example of, you know, religion helping to create the state punishment, the, the, the punishment apparatus of the state, which would go on to become the dominant model. In fact, there's lots of institutions today that are still called penitentiaries, which is sort of taken from this older nomenclature going back to the Catholic Church. So religion played an important role um, in the formation of this type of institution. And then in just the culture, the culture was very sort of Christian uh, dominated. In the very earliest institution, the inmate was given a um, a Bible, and the hope was that the person would reconcile, see the wrong ways of, of their actions, and become penitent. So that was really a part of the plan. Right, so fast forward, um, you know, two centuries. And we're here in the United States with um, the the Muslim influence in prison. And so religion in prison now uh, is is it looks a little different than it did back then. They don't hand out you know Bibles to everyone like they did. Now there's a lot more um, variety and diversity. Uh, and the way prisons operate today uh, is thanks in large part to the Actions of Muslims, right? To the, to the, um, you know, the efforts of Muslims in court. So just to give a little, a little background, um, in the 1960s, in the early 1960s, Islam wasn't even a recognized religion in prison. So if you're a Muslim and you wanted to sort of get some sort of benefit in, in terms of access to texts or, you know, being able to meet with religious leaders, et cetera, special diets, you are basically out of luck. Um, you know, if the institution was kind, they might help, but there was no obligation because 
you weren't protected under the First Amendment as far as prison rights go. And so that was the initial battle for American Muslims in prison was simply to get the religion recognized as a legitimate religious tradition so that prisoners can start to enjoy, you know, and use their First Amendment rights. So that was the first battle for Muslims in prison was to get Islam recognized, you know, as a legitimate bona fide religion. Uh, that's not to say that over the next, you know, half century, uh, there weren't struggles to, you know, enforce that. Because even today, you have some groups that prisons will not recognize as Muslims, right? So they'll identify them as some sort of gang or security group threat, but not give them the status of Muslims, which, um, again, sort of undermines some of the work that Muslims have been doing. But since getting the, you know, kind of fast forward out of the 60s, once Muslims established the right um, to, to practice their religion and have standing in court to challenge policies and procedures and regulations of the prison, uh, then you start to see what I call like the mass wave of Muslim prisoner litigation. You have Muslims that are suing uh, for you know, Muslim rights specifically, and also suing against prison policies like solitary confinement and other policies that impinge on prisoners' rights. So you have Muslim prisoners launching all sorts of litigation. It's, it's amazing. Once, you know, once Islam got established, um, Muslim prisoners were off to the races, um, engaged in lawsuits. And so these lawsuits, you know, they're, they, they involve, um, Suits that are, again, specific to Muslim interests, but then there's other lawsuits that um, are to the benefit of all religion, you know, all religious adherents in prison. So Muslims have fought for rights that Jewish prisoners, Christian prisoners, and other prisoners enjoy to this day. Muslims have also sued for rights uh, that all prisoners enjoy, not just religious prisoners. And so you have... Um, uh, litigation being launched by Muslim prisoners that has really changed the whole complexion of the institution. Um, you know, at, at where there are a, you know, significant portion of, of Muslim prisoners, you'll see all kinds of imams from different institutions and different outreach organizations coming in. And really, you know, you have options in some of these institutions if you're a Muslim prisoner. Whereas in the 60s, there was no such thing as that. So the complexion of the prison and the policies moving forward, you know, even again, um, there are studies that have examined the number of religious land use and institutionalized person act lawsuits. So basically religion and prison type lawsuits uh, and Muslims file more of these claims than any other religious group in prison. And that's sort of an astounding figure, right? When you crunch these numbers, that Muslims, you know, they file more of these lawsuits than any other religious group, even though they are not the largest religious organization in prison. So even to this day, Muslim prisoners are engaged in advancing their religious rights. I mean, we just had the whole Hobbes case come down in 2014, which established that prisoners could have 
a quarter inch beard. So this is now sort of a federal rule that now you could sport a quarter inch beard in, in American prisons. And that was a hard fought victory that, you know, many prisoners in different institutions have sued to, you know, get a rule like this in place. And so it's barely 2014 that it's now in place. And so these are these and other struggles are the kind of fights that Muslims have waged in court to advance theirs and other prisoners' rights. Now, um, you, you mentioned earlier um, a little bit about conversion. And, I mean, for, for some listeners, you, there might be some kind of uh, obvious logic of why a prisoner might think about converting to a religion. Um, perhaps there's more to the story there. But um, I'm wondering if you could tell us why prison becomes a center for religious conversion. And then, probably more importantly, why do many converts choose Islam? when they're incarcerated? What, what is it about, about Islam rather than other traditions that uh, seems appealing to them? Yeah, that's great. Um, so on the first point, you know, there, why? And so one of the things to recognize is that in prison, uh, adopting faith is kind of common across the board. I mean, you have lots of um, prisoners, even if they don't embrace Islam, they kind of revert to a stronger holding of their own tradition or they'll convert to another tradition. So God is very popular in prison. <laughs> Let's put it this way. You know, and some of the rationale would be, um, you know, when you've kind of hit rock bottom, you may have no one else to turn to but God. And so that may be um, a part of it. You know, in, in the psychology literature, there is this connection that's been drawn out between conversion and conditions of confinement in general. And even prior to that, bringing in religious studies observation, um, this idea of trauma, right, um, heavy stressors being a precursor to conversion, that's also something that likely plays into this. And in, in other words, when people, you know, sort of are facing trauma or um, post-trauma, um, you know, really heavy stressors, uh, you know, episodes in life that are just devastating, um, that can help set the conditions for conversion. And so at least one study had shown that prisoners were more likely to convert to a religion. Um, depend, you know, there was a, um, a correlation. Um, the more severe the prison conditions are, so like if you're at maximum security, then the more likely you were to embrace religion. So religion may be a response to some of the trauma. I mean, you know, we've got to recognize that being in prison is um, perhaps unlike any other stressor we will ever face, you know, in our, in our lifetime. I mean, you're talking about total isolation from all everything that you know, you know enforced celibacy. Right. You know, there's no sex in prison at all not, you know, that are that's supposed to happen. Celibacy is a sort of collateral part of your sentence. And there's all sorts of deprivation. It's called a totalizing institution, which means that 100 percent of your life is organized by the prison, 100 percent total. And so for someone whose life has been sort of clamped down like this, 
religion may be the very thing that sets a person free. So I think there's some psychological basis to the conditions of confinement that, you know, may inspire um, a search for a greater meaning, a search for redemption, um, or, you know, something greater than the personal experience you have there in prison. Now, why Islam? That's a very complicated question. Um, like I said, the research on this is pretty sparse, even today, trying to get at the psychological motivators. Now, you know, I've, I've had, you know, I've taken a lot of flack on this very question because, you know, I, I have different sociological reasons. But of course, Muslims themselves would say it's the message of Islam. You know, it, it is the, the truths behind the tradition and the message. And so that's really what you should be thinking about when you talk about why Muslims convert. Now, I, I agree with that. And I think, yeah, obviously it's the message, but I think there are other things that are worth thinking about in terms of locating it in America and within American prisons. Um, so the, the first thing I would think about is the outreach that Muslims have done when it comes to American prisons. Um, you know, by far, you know, at least in the last three or four decades, Muslims, you know, collectively, you know, the different organizations and denominations collectively um, have the most organized and um, sort of consistent outreach in prison. So in other words, you have a lot of volunteers that are willing to put up um, with a lot of, you know, a lot of nonsense, you know, going through the prison gates, you know, sort of being treated a certain way by the guards, having to go through two or three um, entrance points in order to um, preach or, you know, um, do this kind of outreach work with prisoners. So it's very thankless, thankless work. But, you know, we, we see that there have been movements in prison like this since the 1950s. I mean, when Malcolm X was in prison, um, there was already um, outreach going on within prison, the prisoners themselves, but sort of orchestrated from the outside. So one of the you know reasons I think people embrace Islam is because Islam has done a you know Muslims have done a lot to reach out to the prison where where many um, you know organizations may seem may see prisoners as a lost cause or sort of hopeless. Many Muslims see a lot of hope, right? And that was at least Malcolm X's position, you know, in his autobiography, was that he said that there was there was no one who was more primed to hear the message of Islam than the black American prisoner. And so I think that really kind of plays into what I'm to what I'm trying to describe is that the outreach is significant. Uh, another thing that I think is worth wor mentioning is that uh, there, you know, there's a long ethnic history that may be discovered by prisoners, which I also think sort of lends this other cultural layer of attraction to Islam. You know, when African American prisoners learn more about African history, the 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 Moors and sort of their role in European history. Um, that and just even about Muslim history, right? The the fact that Bilal and ex African slaves is tapped to do the first call to prayer, right? Sort of there's a history that can go right back to the Prophet Muhammad, you know, it, that 
African-Americans can claim in Islam. And for many, that's an important that's an important factor, right? Sort of recognizing some of the names that appear in African-American culture, learning that some of the first Muslims ever to come to this country were aboard slave ships, for example. Um, and so that is a really attractive point for African-American Muslims is understanding the history and, you know, coming from, you know, most prisoners are, are indigent, have less education, come from hoods and ghettos. And so when that is your life and you then learn about this history that your people come from, and it's a glorious history, it's a history of innovation and conquest and, you know, just amazing accomplishments. I think people are keen to embrace that as well, in addition to the religion, but there's the sort of the cultural achievements and all that comes with it. And we see this also happening with Latino converts. Uh, when Latinos start to understand, you know, we're talking from all types of stripes, um, start to understand the Islamic history um, in Spain, that itself is inspiring for many. Um, you know, I've, I've heard prisoners talk about, you know, well, we don't, you know, we have, we have Islam in our blood. You know, we come from this. Look, my name is Medina, which is proof. You know, my last name is Medina. I don't, I don't even have to change my name. That's, that's where we come from. And, you know, one of the things that I had always talked about is just understanding the term ojalá and how that is just so pervasive in Spanish culture here in the United States. I'd always heard my parents, my parents say that and sort of understanding that that shows that Islam is a part of Spanish speaking culture. And there's even more. And so as the Latino convert starts to learn more about the, the Moors in Spain and the convivencia and learning more about this, um, it's inspiring. It doesn't look like you're really converting to something foreign, but that you're actually getting closer to something that looks like home. And again, that's why Malcolm X and many others, even Latino converts, talk about reversion, talk about it in terms of we're not converting to something else, but we're just going back to our true religion. So, like I said, there's a number of, of factors that may influence why someone comes to Islam. And of course, you know, I would be totally remiss if I didn't mention some of the obvious, which is that, you know, not every conversion is a full-fledged conversion, right? It's, it's hard for us to understand the mentality of prisoners in that type of setting. Uh, but, you know, you may very well portray yourself as a convert to Islam, even though you have ulterior motives, right? And so not every conversion is a full conversion. Some people are converting, if you will, for other reasons, for maybe perks from the institution, maybe to get out of their cell, or as we hear a lot of times, for protection, right? In order to get you know, you come under the protection of the Muslims in prison, that could be a motivator. Now, of course, the test of time is to determine whether someone keeps with the faith after exiting prison. That's one way scholars have tried to determine whether conversion is genuine, is to look at the person once the person leaves prison and see if that person keeps the faith. Um, and so we have both. We have both instances. We have people who you know, converted, 
that seem genuine, but then they leave the prison, forget all about Islam. And then you have people, you know, documented who converted because they were afraid. They were seeking protection. They wanted to be under the wings of the Muslims. And then those people end up staying in Islam. <laughs> so, you know, you, you have a mixture of both. But I did want to mention that not every, you know, conversion is, is a genuine conversion. And there are other motivators behind bars that could make you want to at least appear to be running with a certain religious group. Now, um, you also in the book, in a, a couple different sections, talk about uh, the issue of radicalization and, um, you know, different parties think about this idea in different ways. And I don't want to try to define it anyway. So uh, how how is this idea of radicalization understood or used by, you know, policymakers or prison administrators? Uh, versus how Muslim inmates might think of uh, some of the same types of factors of, you know, increased piety or, or other things, and how, how might they think about that in different ways? Right. Yeah, no, I, a lot of my work has centered on trying to sort of establish some of these parameters and to to try to define these terms in a way. You know, one of the problems that we've had in just trying to talk about this thing Right, just trying to talk about radicalization is to sort of separate it from different concepts. So, for example, one of the common things that I've come across is that the term convert and radical is often interchanged, right? So it's used synonymously. And that's a huge problem, right? To talk about a, you know, because like I mentioned, conversion is prevalent in prison, conversion to Islam. But that doesn't mean a person is radicalized, right? Because obviously what it does is it makes every convert a suspect of radicalization. And so separating these two very different topics, in fact, they, these topics could be pointing in opposite directions, right? A radical who espouses violence, for example, could be the antithesis of what a convert is thinking about, right? Embracing a religion of peace, trying to, you know, find a path of peace and Violence itself could be an anathema to someone who's on that path. So conversion and radicalization being conflated is, is a real mistake. The other mistake is to um, attach notions of violence to the idea of radicalization, which is really problematized the whole discussion, right? Even the, the government's definition of the federal government's definition of radicalization connected it to violence of some sort. And that's a real problem. Right, because the the idea of radical um, is is really you know in a nutshell is to move away from the norm, right? To move yourself you know far out, if you will. That's where the term far out or radical, you know, tends to imply. And so that kind of thinking could be um, it's dialectical, right? So you could have radical, you know, violence. Or you could have radical pacifism, right? One of the reasons that this is a bit problematic is because some of the prisoners themselves experience a type of radicalization, but it turns out to be a positive outcome. It turns out to be something that's beneficial to the inmate. So, for example, we see individuals who struggled through eighth grade English, for example, now teaching themselves Arabic, right? They've, they've had a, um, 
a real change in them that has changed some of their thinking, um, quite opposite of what they used to think before. Um, people will change their names, they'll change the style of clothing, their dietary habits. Um, and really, you know, from the outside, you would have to say, wow, that's a, that's a quite a radical transformation. You have really sort of changed yourself. People are now, you know, there's an interest in education, learning about history, uh, changing their hygiene. You know, individuals, you know, at least in the case of Al, Al Collins, um, the first time he encountered a Muslim in prison and asked to see the Quran, the Muslim prisoner asked him to wash his hands. And it was such a remarkable experience for him and that it changed his whole way of being as far as like his own hygiene. And so to take someone who really is a social outcast and has been sort of antisocial in many aspects of, of his life to now have concerns about cleanliness, about, you know, um, education and about spending, the, you know, his time wisely behind bars. Right. It's, it is a remarkable transformation. So radicalization, you know, on its own can be something that motivates an individual to change into a different lifestyle, something better than before. More ominously, though, you know, there are um, the, the idea that you know, prisoners are this new column for recruits for Al Qaeda or other foreign operatives and this sort of thinking. Uh, this is what has been pushed by some of our politicians, even though over time, these ideas have not, you know, stood the test of time. And, you know, I'm talking specifically about Representative Peter King, who was really um, outspoken about this idea that, you know, Al Qaeda and other groups are infiltrating our prisons and trying to make, you know, jihadists out of our prisoners, et cetera. And, you know, there was three congressional hearings on the topic of prisoner radicalization, right? And so there was a lot of drum beating going on on this idea. Uh, but <laughs> the Congressional Research Service itself could only identify one case of, of radical of a radicalized prisoner um, engaging in violence um, from within the prison. And even that case was a little sketchy as far as where this person was radicalized. And so... Here you have a situation where <laughs> you've had more congressional hearings on this subject than you have had instances of the phenomenon. And so the idea that prisoners are becoming radicalized to the point of violence is just not true. It just hasn't withstood the test of time. But because of this type of drum beating that has gone on, that hasn't stopped prisons from clamping down on Muslim prisoners especially in the post 9-11 era, um, to buy into some of this rhetoric and discourse that the politicians have laid out. So despite there being almost little to, you know, little to none violent extremism coming from prison, prisons have still, um, you know, engaged in policymaking and restrictions and other regulations that have clamp down on Muslims specifically. And so that has been unfortunate because other consequences have arisen from it. Just to give a simple example, at the federal level, um, in the post 9-11 era, there was um, the Bureau of Prisons saw a problem with imams coming into the prison. And so there was like a hiatus put on uh, imams from coming into the prison. 
And so you had this ridiculous situation where it was three or four um, chaplains, Muslim chaplains, that were servicing the entire federal prisoner population. And this was happening for a long time because they wouldn't let uh, imams in for fear that people were preaching jihad or what have you. And so what happened as, and you had other things as well. You had um, certain books being banned, right? Certain literature that was um, now off limits and other policies that went into place that were really focused on Muslims. Unfortunately, what this did was to create um, leadership vacuums in, in the federal prison system. So what you had um, were now essentially prisoners leading prisoners, um, you know, on Friday services, um, you know, during holidays, what have you. So this, um, the vacancy in the podium, so to speak, allowed others, right, prisoners to come in and um, sort of be the leader, if you will. And this is where the whole phenomenon of Islam kind of comes into play because you have individuals who are not 100% allegiant to Islam, but still have ties to gang culture. And so they're using the podium for ulterior motives, right? And so this vacuum in leadership had these unsavory collateral consequences that really, I think this is what has caused some of the radicalization in prison. Um, even some to the point of violence, was the vacuum in authentic leadership that forced Muslim prisoners to lead themselves, but also opened vacant spots for, you know, prisoners who had other motives rather than, you know, preaching Islam. So it's interesting, in the name of fearing radicalization, policies were put into place that actually stoked radicalization. Uh, you had prisoners who had been reading a text for, you know, a decade or more now all of a sudden told that that book was off limits. So I believe some of the policies actually fomented radicalization rather than addressed it. Now, uh, maybe a, a more uh, engaging topic to some, uh, and maybe kind of not as obvious when thinking about prison culture, but uh, you, you spent a little bit of time uh, addressing hip-hop. And uh, you'd mentioned this earlier in, in our conversation here. So can can you lay out where where does music fit into this equation of uh, Islam and mass incarceration? Right. Yeah. So the way it fits in, at least on one level, is just the um, well, I would argue that the art form and the culture of hip hop just as a whole is greatly indebted to Muslim thinking, Muslim culture. I mean, and we can see the influences actually tracing back prior to what we know as hip-hop, you know, the, the Last Poets, which was a, a Muslim group that did this kind of spoken word, rappy kind of thing over, over jazz beats. You know, this is sort of like a prototype of what would become hip-hop. They were in the late, you know, in the 1960s, and hip-hop took root, you know, in, in the 70s and beyond. And so that, when we think about the very first layer of hip-hop, there's a, you know, a, a predominance of, of Muslim artists. So Islam comes in right, you know, is a part of this thing right when it's starting out. Africa Bambada, who is widely, you know, spoken of as the father of hip hop, he himself was a devout 
Nation of Islam follower. And in, on all of his album covers, he gives thanks to the creator, Allah. And, you know, he was a very, you know, he got out of the gang life to start help start this hip hop culture. And so, you know, when he says in Renegades of Funk, when he says peace, unity, love, you know, that peace is coming from the Islamic influence. And even, you know, in his artwork on the albums, you see the star and crescent. And just it's, it's remarkable to think about even Rakim Allah, you know, him being one of the, you know, sort of most technical rappers of all time and the Muslim influences on him and then Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, the influences on that group. So right at the very germinal phase of hip hop, you know, the language, right, you're hearing, you know, all this language that's coming in. Um, many would trace the idea, you know, the hip hop way of saying peace as a way of, uh, of sort of replicating the way um, five percenters and Nation of Islam folks would address other Muslims, right? They would address them in English and say peace, um, or they would say peace, God. And so some of that language has come into the hip hop culture uh, as well. So, you know, you see it on all levels, the name, you have people at you know early stages like Africa Islam and you have TC Islam, Africa Bambada, right? So these these artists at the very beginning sort of laid a foundation. And then over time you have what I would argue is some of the most influential and popular and um you know just dominant hip hop groups of all time have at some point or another had an Islamic influence. And some still do. I mean, when you think back, you know, you look at the works of Public Enemy and Wu-Tang Clan, um, groups like that to fast forward more of the contemporary artists. Um, the the Islamic thread is, is very, it's strong and it's obvious. Um, and for me, that's what that article, Jihadis in the Hood, really just took me back and got me thinking about all these old lyrics that were stuck in my head because, you know, I came from that culture. I was a DJ, you know, I, I danced. And so hip hop was a huge part of my life. And, you know, I like to joke about it in this way, but I, I kind of thought that in my life, the very first conversion to anything that I ever experienced was to hip hop. And thinking about this now, I mean, there's no doubt I was, you know, exposed to some of these ideas and some of this this language really early on. So for me to now go back with all these, you know, ideas that I have and this knowledge about the Muslim influence on hip hop to go back and look at some of those lyrics and listen to some of my favorite songs. It's really cool. It's eye opening. And you just really see just how much in influence there has been on the music. Um, and of course, um, you know, in, in prison, it's sort of a cyclical thing, right? You have a lot of, I, I argue in, in other works that, you know, the cutting edge of rap isn't happening on the radio in American radios. It's not happening, not even, you know, in the hoods and in the ghettos, right? The, the real cutting edge of hip hop is happening right now inside of prison. <laughs> you know, inside of prison is where I believe, you know, some of the new styles are coming out and just, you know, um, where the evolution of the of the art form takes place. I mean, even H. Rap Brown, you know, who is credited with being one of the authors for Rapper's Delight, wrote that in prison. And so there is this relationship between, um, you know, hip hop and Islam. But 
you know, in, in my article, Sonic Jihad, one of the arguments that I make is that now when it comes to hip hop artists, who's really saying anything about prisons? Who's really speaking out against the criminal justice system? And when you look at that, you would have to say that it's the Muslim artists that have taken this and run with this idea, using the art form as a critique of the criminal justice system, but more specifically of prison, right? Taking this and really, um, you know, if you look at the No More Prisons album, for example, it's, you know, it's majority of Muslim rappers that are on there. And there's, a you know, a number of songs and, you know, themes. And it's really hard to listen to a lot too much hip hop, especially Muslim hip hop, and not hear a prison reference or hear a song about prison or even whole albums about prison. So when it comes to looking at prisons and critiquing, Muslim hip hop artists have taken the lead. And so, you know, the the connections are profound. And like I said, I, I could go on. A long time talking about this, but suffice it to say that um, one scholar put it like this: um, in the way that you know Rast- that the Rastafarian religion took off under the influence of reggae, what reggae did for the Rastafarian movement, hip hop is doing for the Muslim movement in the United States. And I think that that's a, a an accurate assessment of, of of what has happened. So again, it's one of those things that I we talked about with the prisons being an important part um, of Muslim history. I would also say that the evolution of hip hop culture is equally so it's an important part of, of Muslim history, especially because, you know, at least for some of the denominations, the music is critical in, in, you know, in a, in a country like this, the United States where African Americans and Muslims in general, you know, are being surveyed by the, by the police or profiled by police, you know, mosques and gatherings in person may not be the best way to um, practice your religion. And and I believe that for many, um, the music takes on this sort of sacred dimension where it can fulfill some of that fellowship and the camaraderie in the absence of the more traditional ways of Muslim practice. So yeah, there's a lot to say about this, but I hope that sort of kind of wraps, uh, wraps, um, uh, you know, give give a good um, some details about what that all entails, the hip hop yeah, aspect. I'm sure he, and it sounds like you could uh, probably spend more time working on that subject as <laughs> yeah. well. Um, I, I was wondering uh, to kind of wrap up the conversation. You know, uh, you, you said that coming from your training in law and some of the the kind of objectives of, of law as a field. Uh, a lot of it is like, how do we change the system? Um, so what what are some of the suggestions that you have in terms of steps that can be taken to improve uh, the criminal justice system? Yeah. Well, you know, based on my observations, you know, I, I taught in prison as well. I taught at a death row facility in California for a year and I've been, you know, a part of various prison boards for educating prisoners and educating staff. And I would have to say that one of the, I, mean, I guess, the things that I'm hanging a lot of my hope on is just is education. Um, education, to me, is one of the um, things that a, a prisoner can get that can really help that person stay out of prison. Um, I, I don't know if, we'll, you know, the audience is 
aware of how difficult it is to survive outside of prison once you've done some time. Um, prospects for work are really low. And even if you get work, it's characterized by high turnover. It's the kind of terrible work that people don't really want to do. And so, you know, and, and, and a lot of prisoners can come out of prison with debt as well, like financial debt. Uh, and so prospects for finding a good job and earning a livelihood are really low. There's that dreaded question on application forms, you know, have you been arrested or have you been convicted of a crime? And, you know, that shoots down a lot of potential right there. So I think education is one of the ways that prisoners can show that they're on a different path and to acquire the skills or the training or the vocational training to go out and actually um, earn a livelihood. So for me, focusing on education has been a big part of um, what I've been researching. Uh, we in 19, you know, in the mid 1990s, we took away Pell Grant funding from prisoners, which, um, you know, without rhyme or reason, it was just, you know, kind of part of the harsh on crime, tough on crime stance, and, and that was taken in Congress. And as a result, you had, you know, almost 500 or, you know, almost 500 um, colleges, college programs on campus, college and vocational training programs. Um, you know, when this legislation passed, um, within the following year, that number reduced to about five or six in the whole country. So funding for education just had the rug pulled out from under it, you know, in the 90s. And it just never has recovered. There's, you know, just again, just a handful of institutions that are going in and giving post-secondary training to prisoners. And so that is an important aspect. And a subsect a subset of, of prisoner education is religious education. You know, I, I look at a lot of, you know, converts or people who are interested in religion. I see that as a dimension of education, right? You're, they're learning language, you're learning theology, you're learning history. And so um, turning to religion is its own set of education. But even more specifically, I have been espousing that theological schools try to, you know, pair up with prisons so that they can grant um, chaplain certificates to prisoners, right? There's, you know, in prisons across the United States, you know, despite the outreach that I mentioned before, in general, you know, there's there's a lack of Muslim leadership from the outside. There's, there's a lack. I mean, again, thankless work. You've got to sometimes travel really long ways only to be treated like trash by the guards, et cetera. Uh, and so that's a hard task is to get authentic leadership from the outside into the prisons. So one of the things that I've tried to espouse is to, you know, have these educational institutions, these divinity schools, theological schools to pair up with the institution so that prisoners can get training so that there can be um, internal leadership that's authentic and genuine. And so, in other words, let's start training more of these prisoners who are very interested in Islam and who want to be credentialed so that they can um, they can be leaders in the institution rather than relying on um, volunteers to come in. You know, for state prisons, which are the vast majority of prisoners are in state prisons, um, you know, a lot of them 
aren't going to, they don't, they don't spend money on outside leadership, you know, bringing in religious leaders. They rely on volunteers, community um, volunteers. And so if you don't have any Muslim volunteers coming into the prison, then you leave the Muslim services up to the other prisoners. And so to fill that vacuum of leadership, that's one of the things that I've been trying to, you know, advocate for. And again, it's just a, it's a subset of education. Also recognizing the, um, the potential of religion itself on impacting recidivism, I think is something that prisons and institutions are really coming to understand. And this is where Islam is really shines in prison because there's a number of studies that have shown when it comes to recidivism, Muslims tend to recidivate less than other um, individuals from different religious groups. So more than Christians, more than more than Jewish followers, uh, Muslims tend to stay out of prison at higher rates. So really looking at religion as, as a type of evidence-based programming that can help keep prisoners, or, you know, keep prisoners out of prison once they are released and to get them into, um, you know, a, a, a stable lifestyle, et cetera, right? So th- these are definitely uh, some of the, you know, some of the things that need to, to change. But I, I would say the most important thing of all when it comes to the success of, of someone who leaves prison has to do with the, what are called the collateral consequences of being a felony convict. And what a collateral consequence is, it's a civil law that is triggered by your felony. In other words, you know, you're convicted as a felon, you go to prison, and then once you get out of prison, there's a whole range of laws that basically work against you. They disenfranchise you from everything from voting to sitting on a jury to even owning a firearm being able to obtain certain licenses, to being excluded from certain jobs, from being excluded from certain housing, and just the list goes on. All these different civil laws that say, hey, if you're a felon, if you've been convicted of a felony, you no longer qualify for this government benefit or for this program or for any of this. And so it's a, you know, it's like if you're familiar with the atlas, you know, that symbol of the atlas, the guy's holding the world on his back, you know, that's that's sort of the way we make it for ex-prisoners. It's def- it's basically set up for them to fail on the outside. Prospects for employment are almost impossible. You may come out with debt. You are a felon. So, you know, your education may not have improved at all during your whole time in prison. And so... On top of all that, you have all of these laws that are just basically disenfranchising you from the political system and basically giving prisoners every incentive to go back to that very extra legal life that landed them in prison in the first place. So our system of collateral consequences, it's debilitating, it's handicapping, and this is, I think, one of the main target areas of our policymaking that we have to Reduced because all, year after year we keep piling more regulations, more restrictions on the on ex prisoners, 
And, you know, if you see our recidivism rate, it's, it's over 50% nationally. Because the last time I saw it, it's, you know, it's, we're, we're still over 50%, which means over half of the people who go out come back in. And so that cycle has to be stopped. And um, I think really taking a second look at all of these collateral consequences would, would do a lot to sort of strip down all the burden that we put on ex-prisoners. Because again, the goal is rehabilitation. We want them to rehabilitate. We don't want them to come back into prison. But again, all of the laws that we have on the books right now uh, make that a very difficult task. What can you tell us about some of the research you're, you're up to now? Is, is there anything uh, that you're still working on related to Islam and Muslims? Yeah, actually, thank you for, for that. I'm actually writing a book um, right now, and the focus is on Muslim prisoner litigation. So what I'm trying to do is I'm sifting through, you know, seems like zillions of cases of, you know, Muslim lawsuits in prison. And I'm trying to sort of look at this through the lens of what's called outcrit jurisprudence, really looking at things from the bottom up, if you will, from the outgroup perspective and trying to, you know, give a sense of just how incredible that this history is. It's this untold history of Muslims suing in, in court. And, you know, it's so voluminous, uh, and it's so widespread that I'm, I'm in shock. I just feel like I keep looking over my shoulder. Like, are you sure no one else is working on this? Cause <laughs> it can't be that nobody's written on this yet. Cause we're talking thousands and thousands of lawsuits, right? That have been waged by, by Muslim prisoners. And I'm trying to compile this now and, and take a really, you know, like a comprehensive look at this phenomenon that has started in the 1960s. And that goes all the way till today where Muslim prisoners are still, um, you know, filing more lawsuits than any other religion in prison right now. So, again, this is a part of that Muslim history that we were talking about earlier, is that I don't think many people know this. I don't think that many people realize just what sort of an impact Muslim prisoners have left behind and are continuing to leave behind on the prison system. So I'm looking at the litigation itself, right? All the various aspects, everything from, you know, First Amendment claims to Eighth Amendment cruel and unusual punishment claims by Muslim prisoners. And so I'm hoping for it to be sort of the definitive book on Muslim prisoner litigation and, you know, really looking at, um, you know, the changes that have occurred because of um, prisoners suing in court. And so it's a, it's just an amazing history. I can't believe that, um, there's not more on this out there right now. So I'm hoping to, to fill the gap, um, with this research. And again, it's really relying on my religious studies training and my legal training. You know, part of the main argument that I want to make in the book is that some of what has been sustaining the litigation has been the phenomenon of conversion. Right. Conversion itself as one of the, um, the, the impetus, right, for the efforts to sue, that some of that drive, some of that determination comes from the force of conversion, right? Your, your zeal for the new tradition and your, you know, your allegiance to it and what you're willing to do. Like converts have done amazing things in this world. <laughs> you know, when you think about 
world history when, you know, someone adopts a new faith. And so I, I think that, you know, conversion has something to say, you know, in this story. So um, it's it's not just about converts and them suing, but the fact that conversion may be what's driving some of the lawsuits, right? Mm-hmm. So, and it tells what I'm hoping will will happen is that it really fills out this argument that I've been making for the last decade or so, which is that Muslim prisoners do not, they don't resort to violence the the way the media has portrayed it, or at least the way politicians have portrayed that idea, right? Muslim prisoners, they, you know, don't think about, you know, terroristic acts or any kind of violent behavior to deal with their grievances. What this research shows is that Muslims have an affinity for courts. <laughs> they have an affinity for lawsuits. So this is really how Muslims in prison for decades now and continue. That's how they've been dealing with their grievances, um, with their problems with the institution. They've been settling it out through court. Um, thousands of lawsuits, you know, all kinds of, um, you know, d- different areas of law. But really the idea that you know, the danger that Mus- the Muslims in prison, you know, what they pose, it's not a danger of violence, but really for the institution, it's the danger of a lawsuit. And so what I really am trying to do is to temper this idea of what the role of Islam is in prison. It's not some force that turns, you know, prisoners into extremists, violent extremists, but it's a force that helps the prisoners and really kind of guides them to deal with their differences through legal channels. So it's quite the opposite. Rather than law-breaking, Muslims should be understood to be among the most law-abiding of prisoners, because they're the ones who are typically relying on courts and judges to, you know, come to their aid when it comes to, you know, the administration. So, um, you know, some big ideas that I'm trying to get out with this work, but I am in the process of looking at all of these, you know, court opinions and trying to, you know, systematize it all. But I'm hoping that it really makes a statement about what's really going on in prison and and using the litigation to show that. So that's what I'm working on now. Hopefully by the, you know, by the end of the summer or so, I should have, should have this main draft ready and I'll be looking to, to get this out there. Yeah, that's great. It sounds like uh, really important, but but also like really fascinating work. I, I mean, just from uh, keeping an eye on the news, you you hear about these kind of stories uh, in the past, uh, you know, ten years or so that they keep popping up. So I'm sure this longer history will be really uh, interesting, kind of demonstrate the importance of this this role. So so yeah. good luck, and uh, yeah, we we look forward to uh, the, the completed pro- project. Great. Well, thanks for having me on. It's been a pleasure, and um, I look forward to to hearing more of your podcast. Really great. That was my conversation with Spirit about his great new book, American Prisons, a critical primer on culture and conversion to Islam. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. We hope you'll join us next time.